Being ready includes responsible activity. That's what I'd like to talk with you about today. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. So, it's a little phrase that you've heard it before. It says this, use it or lose it. Have you said that before? It's true of biblical languages. I know it's true of Hebrew and Greek. There are insights that we gather from using Hebrew and Greek. Uh, one of them is as we study using those original languages, we, we see the word you. And if we see that word you in English, we don't know if that's actually singular or plural, do we? The context would have to determine that, but we don't really know. And yet Greek is a very precise language. Hebrew is more like English. Context really determines a lot. But Greek is very precise. And so when you look in the Greek, you always know if it's singular or plural based on an ending that it gives you. Well, that's kind of interesting for us because there's a few passages where it talks about your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and the you there is not singular, it's plural. So y'all are the body of Christ rather than just you singular. Interesting. So that changes things because if, if it's just me singular, well, then I need to take care of this body. But if it's us plural then we need to take care of the body. See how the implications are much different? Use it or lose it. Sadly for me, I've lost most of it because I just don't use it as often as I should. I also studied a little bit of Spanish for a while and used it for a little bit, but then I've lost it. If one says anything to me in Spanish, I pretty much wouldn't understand it. The only thing I think I can do is know how to get to the bathroom and say, um, como se dice, and das mas despacio, por favor. Is that right? Please say it slowly, because I didn't get it. Yeah, that's about it. Otherwise, if you don't use it, you lose it. Okay? How about this? We can say the same thing about our text for today, our gospel lesson. Okay? And that is, if I don't use it, I'll lose it. That's happened with the third one, right? One was given five talents, one was given two talents, one was given one talent. And a talent is simply a measure or amount of a precious metal. So it's like money. So each were given money, each according to their ability. So I don't want you to think of a talent like an ability that I have. Okay, they all had their abilities, and each were given an amount of money to do business with their abilities to make more. So what I want you to think of is it's kind of like the opportunity God gives us. He gives money to make more money. He gives opportunity for us to do something with our lives and what we know in Jesus. So it's not just the abilities, it's the opportunities. Okay, That's what I want you to think of for today. And just like for them, what was different was um, whether they used it or not to whether they would keep it and build or simply lose it and lose everything. So how does our discussion today about being ready includes responsible activity fit into the context of this parable? Well, remember the parable right before this, well, the one right after it is the sheep and the goats, more about that responsible activity. And the one right before it is about being ready for Jesus to come again with the parable of the ten virgins. Five were ready, five were not. And so we want to think now, what does it mean to be ready? And as you see from the screen, it means to be involved in responsible activity. We are disciples who are to make more disciples. We are those who are loved and forgiven. 
who are to love and forgive. We are those who have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light so that we might declare the praises of the one who has done that for us and to live our lives as a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? A priest brings the neighbor's needs to God and represents God to our neighbors. We are in view of God's mercy, as it says in Romans 12, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, following Jesus who was sacrificed for us and who says to us, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what we're called to today. Now, you may, like me, have good intentions to do that. We hear God's word. We love God for what he's done for us. We say, yes, I want to deny myself, take up my cross and follow me. But then I get out of bed. Or then I leave the church. Or then I get involved with things and it's time to have a meal. Or I, get, I have a little bit of free time and, and everything falls apart. My desires are good because I really desire to hear Jesus say one day, well done. Enter into the joy of your master. But my activity oftentimes looks more like that of a third servant, not using the opportunities that God has given me according to my abilities. As it says in Colossians 4, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. If we would look back, and again, there are people, I'm sure, that can look back at life and say, no regrets. I can't do that. There have been so many opportunities that I have had to use time well, to really connect with people well, to love and serve others well, that I've just missed. Have you? Opportunities? Or there may be some of you who are like, nope, no regrets. I've made the most of all of those opportunities. If that's you, that's fantastic. But honestly, I can't relate to that. I almost have regrets on a daily basis with how I use my time. I feel a lot like that wicked servant. How does one get to be like that wicked servant, that last one? You see, because the master calls him wicked and slothful or lazy. I was listening to a book a couple of days ago, and, and the forward to the book was really excellent, and I'd like to read that to you at this time. It's the book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, written back in 1986 by Neil Postman. Amusing Ourselves to Death. And this is the foreword. Now, in order for this to make the most sense, you can still, even if you haven't read these things, you can still understand this, but have you ever read the book by George Orwell, 1984? Long time ago, correct, yes. And has anybody here read Aldous Huxley's Brave New World? Okay, so both of those are, are what he's going to use here in this forward. It says this, We were keeping our eye on 1984, so this is a couple years after that. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, Thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, 
Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble-puppy. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World, revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that we that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. This book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. Let me just list a a few of those things you just heard in there. Amusing ourselves to death by adoring technology. Guilty as charged. Not interested in reading a book. I really can't relate to that one at all. Okay, you know that. But I wonder how many of the people I talked to in college and others really have no time for books. We have not so much, we have so much that we are reduced to passivity and egoism. Does that touch anybody's heart besides mine? Passivity. Oh, whatever, I'll just, whatever goes on, it's okay. As long as it doesn't impact. Me, egoism, it's all about me, everything's about me. Have you noticed that? It's all about me. How do you make me look as I stand next to you? It's all about me. Do we live in a hyper-vigilant world that's all about me? Huxley had a lot right, writing decades ago. What else? Drowned in a sea of irrelevance? Have you been on social media recently? (laughs) Most of the stuff on there is irrelevant. Our lives would not be impacted greatly if most of that was gone. Trivial culture preoccupied with fluff. My almost infinite appetite for distractions. Controlled not by inflicting pain, but rather by inflicting pleasure. What I love ruins me. I am so convicted as I look at this list because when I think about the difference between those who were responsibly active in doing what the master had given them to do 
We're not led to laziness and distraction. But that list I just read to you certainly is convicting to me because it keeps me oftentimes from that responsible activity. As I'm amusing myself to death. This is a fairly accurate list of what drives me. Does it drive any of you? Instead of responsible activity, instead of remembering what Paul says, as he writes in Ephesians 2, we all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For we have been saved by grace through faith, and it is not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. For we are then, verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Where it's not like we've been saved by Jesus so we can sit down on a nice sofa, put our feet up and say, doesn't really matter, I'm done, I'm good, let's be done. That's not what God calls us to. No matter how young or old we are, we have purpose. We still have responsible activity to do. But instead, I'm overwhelmed by distractions and selfish preoccupation and doing nothing. But that isn't all that compels my activity. What about inactivity based on fear? Fear of doing something wrong. How many of us are handcuffed because we're like, I don't, I don't want to do the wrong thing, so I'll do nothing. That's been in my life pretty prevalent because I fear a lot. Okay? Fortunately, a lot of people that come to this church are the exact opposite of me. I love having you here. But is there fear that keeps you from doing anything? Is there a fear that just binds you up? You see, another one that's a problem is a fear that's based on an inappropriate view of God. Did you notice that the first two it never mentions? It just says they were obedient. The master gave them. They used the opportunities. They used the talent they were given. And they used it to make much of what they were given. But they weren't all given the same thing. You and I, we all don't have the same amount. We don't all have the same abilities. And we're not all given the same amount of opportunities. That's okay. Just use what you've been given to, do the, to fulfill the opportunities in front of you. Don't compare. Just fulfill. Be about it. But one of the problems for that younger, that not younger, the third one, is his attitude towards God. You're a hard man. You're a hard man, and you reap where you don't sow. You do, you're like this. How many of us are afraid of responsible activity because we don't get our understanding of who God is from the scriptures, but we get it from our life experiences? Or we get it from what the culture says. Does that ever happen? Yes, yes it does. Guarantee it does. I've talked to people for whom that's true. But you know what? Psalm 145, we just did that yesterday for our little psalm prayer time. You know what Psalm 145, I think it's verse 8, says, The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Is that the God you live with? Is that the God you serve? Does that 
just, he's gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. He's merciful. He doesn't give us what we do deserve. He is slow to anger because we're like sheep who like to stray. And he's always consistent. He abounds in steadfast love. And he says, you're my workmanship. I've got things for you to do. Does not his love compel us? Does not his mercy compel us to love our neighbors? Now, when you're stuck in the wrong mindset, what we might need is some things to help us out of that. And for these, I I want to share a little bit from Henry Cloud's book, How People Grow. And I thought this was kind of interesting, because if we want to leave behind some of those wrong mindsets, first is just to remind ourselves of the truth of who God is. And there's three things I want to share with you. I shared these with a, a group yesterday, okay? And for these, one is God is creator. Let's say that together. God is creator. Number two, relationships are primary. Relationships are primary. And number three, God's in charge. God's in charge. Okay, so that makes sense, right? So God is creator. Therefore, what we are, are humbly dependent. Here's the question for you. Do you go through each day living as though you are Humbly dependent on God for each thing throughout the day? That's the, when you go overseas, other places, Africa, different places where the suffering is great, they say, well, we have one advantage over Americans. We understand that we can't make it through an entire day without Jesus. Whereas we are like, ah, I'm just fine. I've got plenty in the bank. I'm driving a new car. I've got the things I need. I'm pretty healthy. i got blah, blah, blah. We're just fine. There's a, and in that book, How People Grow, Henry Cloud talks about a, a uh, husband and wife. Husband was a pastor. Wife worked in the ministry. And as they were doing their things, their ministry was growing, but their marriage was falling apart. And as their marriage was falling apart, yet they were doing all these things, why was their marriage falling apart? And part of it was they would pray to God about the big things, but all the small things, they wouldn't depend on him for those things. I wonder how many times during the day I say, Dear God, I can't without you. Would you help me here? In contrast to all all of us who are simply trying to white-knuckle it through the day. I can do it. If I just try harder, if I just try harder, I can do it this time. Eight million times before, I have not done it, but I'll do it today. I have not gotten the work done I needed to do whenever this occurs. So I should pray when I get close to this time. I should pray through this time. I should pray on the outside of this time. I should see that I'm dependent on God and that I need him. Is there anything that you actually need God for today? I would say that if God withdraws his presence from you, you would not be able to breathe. You need him for every moment. We're just not aware of it. Like that couple whose marriages was falling apart. They need dependent Humbly dependent on Jesus. 
that's part of how we grow, right? Because if we're humbly dependent on Jesus, we need to know who he is. And when we know who he is, we'll know that he's not that hard man. But he's actually gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Relationships are primary. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are those primary relationships. Okay? How many times does the list that we read from Aldous Huxley, all those other distractions, get in the way of people and of God? You all have lived long enough to know that you can amass all sorts of things in the house, but those aren't near as important as the relationships you engage with, right? You might have a ton of stuff, but if you have no relationships... Life just isn't as satisfying. And if we don't walk under this right relationship with God, how can we love well? How can we forgive well? How can we be joyful if we're missing out on the most important relationship? I wonder if I'm tied into God and I'm loving others, if that will help me to fulfill the mission of responsibly acting for our God. I think so. Finally, oh, relationships. One other thing. That husband and wife that I was talking about, he had an addiction problem. It was a sexual addiction. And in that addiction problem that he had, okay, you know what he needed? He needed to remember who God was, but he was a pastor. He understood that. You know what he needed? He needed an accountability group that said, you aren't doing that. Who walked with him, who encouraged him, who fed into him, who were present with him. He needed that. How many times do we try and do this Christian walk on our own? Does Jesus say anywhere in the scripture, have a good time walking with me by yourself? Is that found there anywhere? What does the scripture say over and over and over again? You are part of the body of Christ. Jesus is your head. You're part of the body. So every time I'm like, no, I can do this by myself, or I don't need all those other people. Look how lousy they are. Blah, 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 blah. Just want you to notice you're part of the lousy people, the sheepy people who do the bad things that we need in our lives so that we can, God can rub off the rough edges Scott Saul writes in his book about he and another pastor. Two pastors were really getting into it, and they had different backgrounds, and they were fighting and fighting and fighting. They were saying awful things to each other and about each other and just ripping each other one after the other. After they did that, they got back together again, and the other pastor came to him and said, I really messed up, and they began to to talk through and heal all the stuff that they did. And the one other pastor said to him, You know, pastor, we're like two pieces of sandpaper. We need each other to smooth out the rough edges. We need each other. I wonder who here is kind of hard for you to get along with sometimes that you desperately need to get over yourself. Relationships are primary. You know what? I'm looking uh, at a whole bunch of eternal people, forever people. I will live and reign with you forever. I will live and reign with you forever. I ought to get used to kind of liking you. 
relationships are primary. But when we lose sight of that, we lose sight of hope. And we let go of our activity. Finally, God's in charge. He looked at this couple. You know what he said to him? He said, as I spend time with you, I'm noticing something. You don't have enough love between you for this to work. Wow, what a statement. You don't have enough love between you to make this work. How many of you out there, how many of us in here have been in relationships where there's just not enough love to make it work? Okay? But then he said this to this couple that worked in the church. He said, but I know that you both understand the gospel. And I know that you both are living in the overwhelming love of God. And you're responding to God because he loved, you now love. And so what I'd like you to do is not focus on this, but I want you to focus on God being in charge. And as you've made this relationship together, I want you to look to him for direction and strength to do what you can't do on your own. If you've been married long enough, your spouse will do things that you just don't really like very much. Except for you two. The rest of us can all understand that, can't we? Has your, has your spouse, even if, they, even if they're gone right now, did they ever do anything that kind of irritated you like a lot? Kind of drove you crazy? And you're like, I could, do with, I could do without that. And yet, I wonder how many of you looked not to your spouse for the strength to do what was right, but to your God who was faithful to give you direction and strength to do because of this relationship what needed to be done in this relationship. When, if that wicked, lazy servant had been connected with the God who he was dependent on, the God who had put him in relationships to make disciples, and the God who had actually been in charge of his life, saying, now live this way. If he had been connected, I wonder if he wouldn't have been taking that out and at least putting it in the bank, if not using it to make another talent. How about us? Do we have anything hidden? Do we have anything put in the ground? Like, I just want to keep this safe because I'm scared. Because God says to get over your fears, remember how dependent you are on me, how good I am. Remember that I'm going to put you in relationships that can help and support and encourage you as well as lead you where you need to go. And I'm in charge and I'm working for good. Follow me. But you know, even if you do all those different things, are you and I really good enough to be good enough for God when Jesus comes again? Not even close. So what's going on here? We need to look at this a little bit more. You see? Oh, I wanted to share one more thing. Sorry. And that is when we're dealing with fear... Wouldn't it be great to be reminding ourselves over and over again, and this is something I need to do, and I needed to get much better at it. Psalm 23 says something. It says, Yea, though I walk through the valley, for thou art with me, for thou art with me. Say that again. For thou art with me. I don't need to be afraid because the good God that I'm dependent on is with me. The God who's in charge of all things is with me. The God who loves me enough that he gave us that he gave me his son is with me, is with you, that you might go and bear abundant fruit. 
But you know, the one who really was carrying on responsible activity, his name is Jesus. The one who always did what the Father said. Everything that the Father said was accomplished for us so that Jesus could say while he hung on the cross his final words, Tetelestai, which means it is finished. Jesus responsibly did everything for us in our place. Do you know why? So that one day we might read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down. The job was done at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know what that means for us now? This means that Jesus can look at each one of us, whether or not we've done really super well or not, and say, Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy. The kingdom is what you're entered into. Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus, who for the joy set before him that he would bring us into the kingdom, enter into the joy. As COVID's happening, as craziness is going around, as our health might not be where it needs to be, as our relationships may not be as good as we want them to do, as our eyes are off of ourselves and onto the one who was responsibly active for you and for me, we can have joy. Joy. Ain't that awesome? Isn't God good? Last thing for you. If we enter into the joy of our master, do you and I need to create it by our responsible activity? No. No. It's already there. We just enter into the joy. Mm -hmm. Part of our joy today will be to receive the very body and blood of Jesus and enter into the joy as we remember his death. We enter into the joy of our sins forgiven and strength to live new in Christ. Amen?